Section 8 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Henry Clay, Part 4. In 1837 came the bursting of the money bubble, which had turned everybody's head and led to the most extravagant speculations, high prices, high rents, and lofty expectations in all parts of the country. This was followed, of course, by the commercial crisis, the general distress, and all the evils which Clay and Webster had predicted, but to which the government of Van Buren seemed to be indifferent while enforcing its pet schemes against all the settled laws of trade and the experiences of the past. But the country was elastic, after all, and a great reaction set in. New political combinations were made to express the general indignation against the responsible party in power, and the Whig party arose joined by many leading Democrats like Rives of Virginia and Talmadge of New York, while Calhoun went over to Van Buren and dissolved his alliance with Clay, which in reality for several years had been hollow. In the presidential election of 1840, Mr. Van Buren was defeated by an overwhelming majority, and the Whigs came into power under the presidency of General Harrison, chosen not for talents or services, but for his availability. The best that can be said of Harrison is that he was an honest man. He was a small farmer in Ohio, with no definite political principles, but had gained some military éclat in the War of 1812. The presidential campaign of 1840 is well described by Carl Schurz as a popular frolic, with its monster mass meetings, with log cabin raccoons hard cider, with huge picnics, and ridiculous doggerel about Tippecanoe and Tyler II. The reason why it is called out so great an enthusiasm was frivolous enough in itself, but it expressed the popular reaction against the misrule of Jackson and Van Buren, which had plunged the country into financial distress, notwithstanding the general prosperity which existed when Jackson was raised to power, a lesson to all future presidents who set up their own will against the collected experience and wisdom of the leading intellects of the country. President Harrison offered to the great chieftain of the Whig party the first place in his cabinet, which he declined, preferring his senatorial dignity and power. Besides, he had been Secretary of State under John Quincy Adams and found the office irksome. He knew full well that his true arena was the Senate chamber, which also was most favorable to his presidential aspirations. But Webster was induced to take the office declined by Clay, having for his associates in the cabinet such able men as Ewing, Badger, Bell, Crittenden, and Granger. Mr. Clay had lost no time, when Congress assembled in December 1840, in offering a resolution for the repeal of the Sub-Treasury Act, but as the Democrats still had a majority in the Senate, the resolution failed. When the next Congress assembled, General Harrison, having lived only one month after his inauguration, and the Vice President John Tyler having succeeded him, the Sub-Treasury Act was repealed, but the President refused to give his signature to the bill for the recharter of the United States Bank, to the dismay of the Whigs, and the deep disappointment of Clay, who at once severed his alliance with Tyler and became his bitter opponent, carrying with him the Cabinet, which resigned, with the exception of Webster, who was engaged in important negotiations in reference to the northeastern boundary. The new Cabinet was made up of Tyler's personal friends, who had been Jackson Democrats, and the fruits of the great Whig victory were therefore in a measure lost. The Democratic Party gradually regained its ascendancy, which it retained with a brief interval until the election of Abraham Lincoln. A question greater than banks and tariffs, if moral questions are greater than material ones, now began again to be discussed in Congress, ending only in civil war. This was the slavery question. 
i have already spoken of the missouri compromise of eighteen twenty which mr clay has the chief credit of effecting but the time now came for him to meet the question on other grounds the abolitionists through the constant growth of the anti-slavery sentiment throughout the north had become a power and demanded that slavery should be abolished in the district of columbia and here again i feel it best to defer what i have to say on anti-slavery agitation to the next lecture especially as clay was mixed up in it only by his attempt to pour oil on the troubled waters he himself was a southerner and was not supposed to take a leading part in the conflict although opposed to slavery on philanthropic grounds without being an abolitionist he dreaded the extension of the slave power yet as he wished to be president he was afraid of losing votes and did not wish to alienate either the north or the south but for his inordinate desire for the presidential office he might have been a leader in the anti-slavery movement all his sympathies were with freedom he took the deepest interest in colonization and was president of the colonization society which had for its aim the sending of manumitted negroes to liberia the question of the annexation of texas forced to the front in the interest of the slaveholding states united the democrats and elected james k polk president in eighteen forty four while clay and the whig party who confidently expected success lost the election by reason of the growth of the anti-slavery or liberty party which cast a large vote in new york the pivotal state without whose support in the electoral college the carrying of the other northern states went for naught the mexican war followed and in eighteen forty six david wilmot of pennsylvania moved an amendment to a bill appropriating two million dollars for final negotiations providing that in all territories acquired from mexico slavery should be prohibited the Wilmot proviso was lost, but arose during the next four years, again and again, in different forms, but always as the standard of the anti-slavery northerners. When the anti-slavery agitation had reached an alarming extent and threatened to drive the South into secession from the Union, Clay appeared once again in his great role as a pacificator. To preserve the Union was the dearest object of his public life he would by a timely concession avert the catastrophe which the southern leaders threatened and he probably warded off the inevitable combat when in eighteen fifty he made his great speech in favor of sacrificing the wilmot proviso and enacting a more stringent fugitive slave law in eighteen forty eight embittered by having been set aside as the nominee of the whig party for the presidency in favor of general taylor one of the successful military chieftains in the mexican war who as a southern man with no political principles or enemies was thought to be more available clay had retired from the senate and for a year had remained at ashland nominally and avowedly out of politics but intensely interested in writing letters about the new slavery complications in december eighteen forty nine he was returned to the senate and inevitably became again one of the foremost in all the debates when the conflict had grown hot and fierce in january eighteen fifty clay introduced a bill for harmonizing all interests as to the disputed question of slavery in the new territory he would pacify the north by admitting california as a free state and abolishing slavery and the slave trade in the district of columbia while the south was to be placated by leaving utah and new mexico unrestricted as to slavery and by a more efficient law for the pursuit and capture of fugitive slaves his speech occupied two days delivered in great physical exhaustion and was an appeal to the north for concession and to the south for peace like webster who followed with his renowned seventh of march speech and who alienated massachusetts because he did not go far enough for freedom clay showed that there could be no peaceable secession that secession meant war and that it would be war to propagate a wrong in which the sympathy of all mankind would be against us 
calhoun followed defending the interests of slavery which he called the rights of the south though too weak to deliver his speech which was read for him he clearly saw the issue that slavery was doomed if the union were preserved and therefore welcomed war before the north should be prepared for it it was the south carolinians last great effort in the senate for the hand of death was upon him he realized that if the south did not resist and put down agitation on the slavery question the cause would be lost it was already virtually lost since the conflict between freedom and slavery was manifestly irrepressible and would come in spite of concessions which only put off the evil day on the eleventh of march seward of new york now becoming prominent in the senate spoke deprecating all compromise on a matter of principle and declaring that there was a higher law than the constitution itself he therefore would at least prevent the extension of slavery by any means in the power of congress on the ground of moral right not of political expediency undismayed by all the threats of secession two weeks afterward chase of ohio took the same ground as seward from that time seward and chase supplanted webster and clay in the confidence of the north on all anti-slavery questions after seven months of acrimonious debate in both houses of congress and during a session of extraordinary length the compromise measures of clay were substantially passed a truce rather than a peace which put off the dreadful issue for eleven years longer it was the best thing to do for the south was in deadly earnest exceedingly exasperated and blinded a war in eighteen fifty one would have had uncertain issues with such a man as fillmore in the presidential chair to which he had succeeded on the death of taylor he was a most respectable man and of fair abilities but not of sufficient force and character to guide the nation it was better to submit for a while to the fugitive slave law than drive the south out of the union with the logical consequences of the separation but the abolitionists had no idea of submitting to a law which was inhuman even to pacify the south and the law was resisted in boston which again kindled the smothered flames to the great disappointment and alarm of clay for he thought that his compromise bill had settled the existing difficulties in the meantime the health of the great pacificator began to decline he was forced by threatening and distressing cough to seek the air of cuba which did him no good he was obliged to decline an invitation of the citizens of new york to address them on the affairs of the nation but wrote a long letter instead addressed more to the south than to the north for he more than any other man saw the impending dangers although there was a large majority at the south in favor of union yet the minority had become furious and comprised the ablest leaders concerning whose intention such men as seward and chase and john p hale were skeptical in the ferment of excited passions it is not safe to calculate on men's acting according to reason it is wiser to predict that they will act against reason here clay was wiser in his anxiety than the northern statesmen generally who thought there would be peace because it was reasonable clay did not live to see all compromises thrown to the winds he died june twenty ninth eighteen fifty two in the seventy sixth year of his age at the national hotel in washington imposing funeral ceremonies took place amid general lamentation and the whole country responded with glowing eulogies i have omitted allusion to other speeches which the great statesman made in his long public career and have presented only the salient points of his life in which his parliamentary eloquence blazed with the greatest heat for he was the greatest orator in general estimation that this country has produced although inferior to webster in massive power and purity of style and weight of argument and breadth of knowledge to my mind his speeches are diffuse and exaggerated and wanting in simplicity but what reads the best is not always the most effective in debate certainly no american orator approached him in electrical power no one had more devoted friends no one was more generally beloved no one had greater experience or rendered more valuable public services and yet he failed to reach the presidency 
to which for thirty years he had aspired, and which at times seemed within his grasp. He had made powerful enemies, especially in Jackson and his partisans, and politicians dreaded his ascendancy and feared that as president he would be dictatorial, though not perhaps arbitrary like Jackson. He would have been a happier man if he had not so eagerly coveted a prize which it seems is unattainable by mere force of intellect, and is often conferred apparently by accidental circumstances. It is too high an office to be sought, either by genius or services, except in the military line. But even General Scott, the real hero of the Mexican War, failed in his ambitious aspirations, as well as Webster, Clay, Calhoun, Benton, Seward, Chase, and Douglas, while less prominent men were selected, and probably ever will be. This may be looked at as a rebuke to political ambition, which ought to be satisfied with the fame conferred by genius rather than that of place, which never yet made a man really great. The presidency would have added nothing to the glory which Clay won in the Congress of the United States. It certainly added nothing to the fame of Grant, which was won on the battlefield, and it detracted from that of Jackson. And yet Clay felt keenly the disappointment that with all his talents and services, weaker men were preferred to him. Aside from the weakness of Clay in attempting to grasp a phantom, his character stands out in an interesting light on the whole. He had his faults and failings which did not interfere with his ambition, and great noble traits which more than balanced them, the most marked of which was the patriotism whose fire never went out. If any man ever loved his country and devoted all the energies of his mind and soul to promote its welfare and secure its lasting union, that man was the illustrious senator from Kentucky, whose eloquent pleadings were household words for nearly half a century throughout the length and breadth of the land. With him there was no east, no west, no north, and no south to be especially favored or served, but the whole country, one and indivisible for ages to come. And no other man in high position had a more glowing conviction of its ever-increasing power and glory than he. Whether, says his best biographer, he thundered against British tyranny on the seas or urged the recognition of the South American sister republics, or attacked the high-handed conduct of the military chieftain in the Florida War, or advocated protection and internal improvements, or assailed the one-man power and spoils politics in the person of Andrew Jackson, or entreated for compromise and conciliation regarding the tariff or slavery, there was always ringing through his words a fervid plea for his country, a zealous appeal in behalf of the honor and the future greatness and glory of the Republic, or an anxious warning lest the Union be put in jeopardy. One thing is certain, that no man in the country exercised so great an influence, for a generation, in shaping the policy of national legislation as Henry Clay, a policy which, on the whole, has proved enlightened, benignant, and useful. And hence his name and memory will not only be honorably mentioned by historians, but will be fondly cherished so long as American institutions shall endure. He is one of the greater lights in the galaxy of American stars, as he was the advocate of principles which have proved conducive to national prosperity in the first century of the nation's history. It is a great thing to give shape to the beneficent institutions of a country, and especially to be a source of patriotic inspiration to its people. It is greater glory than to be enrolled in the list of precedents, especially if they are mentioned only as the fortunate occupants of a great office to which they were blindly elected. Of the long succession of the occupants of the papal chair, the most august of worldly dignities, not one in twenty has left a mark, or is of any historical importance, while hundreds of churchmen and theologians in comparatively humble positions have left an immortal fame. The glory of Clay is not dimmed because he failed in reaching a worthy object of ambition. It is enough to be embalmed in the hearts of the people as a national benefactor, and to shine as a star of the first magnitude in the political firmament. Authorities 
Carl Schurz's Life of Henry Clay is far the ablest and most interesting that I have read. The Life of Clay by Colton is fuller and more pretentious, but is diffuse. Benton's Thirty Years in Congress should be consulted, also the various lives of Webster and Calhoun. See also Wilson's Rise and Fall of the Slave Power in America. The writings of the political economists, like Sumner, Walker, Carey, and others, should be consulted in reference to tariffs. The life of Andrew Jackson sheds light on Clay's hostility to the hero of New Orleans. End of section 8